Amen. If you uh, don't have a Bible, or let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in a little bit, I think. Um, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the rooms and the little racks underneath the seats. Uh, you may have noticed we've prayed a lot today. Um, there's a reason. Uh, you ever just have one of those moments where you feel like everything you're participating in is chaos? Um, some of you are nodding yes, and others are liars. Um, that's kind of how today's, this morning has been for us. Every little thing that could go wrong has gone wrong. Every little thing that, that could have been smooth instead caused other problems that we had to deal with. Uh, and so uh, we trust our God is big. We trust that our God provides for every need. Uh, we trust that, that uh, he will do what he wants with this gathering of his people today. Um, and so if you came for a show, <laughs> we're not talented enough to put one on. Um, but we trust our God is big. And so we prayed a lot today through every element. And it's because we need him. We need him to do something that we can't do. And so uh, let's, let's open up his word. How about we do that? Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, the screens, is that a yes or no? It's a yes? Okay, good. All right. Um, we got the physical Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take one home. We value God's word here. We believe it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. We believe it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to us as his creation. Uh, we also uh, believe, like we talked about last week, that it is the tool that he uses to shape his church into who he wants his church to be and those kinds of things. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of, this, outside of this place, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home and start reading it. Now, that, that means actually read it. Like, if you're not going to read it, don't take our Bibles. Don't be like that. Um, but if you need a Bible, we'd be happy to give you one. So we're smack dab in the middle of a series now. Uh, we've been in it since the beginning of July. Smack dab in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians, or Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We've been calling our series To the Saints, and it's a pretty simple concept. That's who the saints are. It's a church. It's a gathered group of people who have been saved by God, redeemed by God, called holy by God because of his finished work on the cross. And so we've been walking through the letter to the Ephesians for the last several months. We've taken a couple of small breaks, but we've been mostly in there. We've been talking about the saints and their people who have been declared holy and gathered together to help us give God glory and to help us walk in obedience to his command, what we call the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, right? We're going to call it good or not so good? Are we haven't having a good time? I hope so. We're going to be in it for another four months, so there you go. Um, now, we've been walking through this letter for a few months now, uh, and, and so uh, we have, we've talked about all of these incredible things that God has done on our behalf. All right? uh, if Paul opens up his letter in Ephesians 1 by talking about God's grand plan that is, 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 has existed from before the foundation of the world, is the words that he uses. We can call it eternal, right? All right? That his plan is, is not thwartable. It's not, you can't manipulate it. You can't undo it. It's his plan. He's going to carry it through, right? All right? And so uh, while all of the false gods and kings of this world would claim to be moving and shaking, God's like, no, that one's mine. That's Ephesians 1. And then Ephesians 2, he talks about how we are a part of this grand plan, that we, because of our sin, we have been separated from God. He calls us spiritually dead, all right? But he, because God is rich in mercy and because he loves us with a great love, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive through Christ Jesus. You have been saved. That even though we were separated from God, he reconciles us back to himself. 
And then we further learn at the the end of chapter 2 that he reconciles us to each other. He doesn't just leave us in this kind of isolated thing where, all right, we got things repaired with God. No, uh, all the people that he is reconciling to himself, he's also reconciling to each other. And so now there's this thing called the church, and it's kind of this weird eclectic mix of ragtags that you wouldn't expect to hang out in the same room together. But by God's glory and through his grace, he is making them into one body. We said last week, last week, Paul in the first part of chapter 4, launches into, is the word that we used, our response to the great things that God has done. The word therefore is an important word to the Apostle Paul. It's an important word anytime you're reading stuff and you want to understand what's going on, right? If you start a paragraph with the word therefore, if you just kind of pick a random paragraph in the middle of a story and it starts with the word therefore, you're reading something out of context, right? You need to understand what's coming before. And so Paul employs this word, the word therefore, over and over again in this letter and his other letters because he likes to string his arguments together and all these kinds of things. And so he moves from one propositional truth claim to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Therefore this, therefore this, therefore this. And at the beginning of chapter 4 in verse 1, he uses the word therefore again. But this time instead of just moving to the next logical propositional truth claim, he's going to explode with this is how you live in light of these earth-shaking realities. This is how you live in response. This is the correct, appropriate lifestyle based on these eternity-shaping truth claims. That the word therefore, at the beginning of chapter 4, is a massive, massive transition. And we said last week that this teaches us by the way, did anybody watch Luther or study Reformation stuff this week? None of you are nerds like me. But we learned last week that... I know, right? There you go. No, we, we learned last week that, that all the commands of God... Hear me. All the commands of God on your life, on your heart and on your actions, they exist and operate within the context of therefore, right? We said that, that the belonging to Jesus comes before the obeying Jesus, right? And if you get those out of order, you get the gospel wrong. If you, you remember the, the two I words that we, that we learned last week? You're, you're, oh, terrible students. Indicative and imperative. And indicative is a truth and imperative is a command. All right. So we learned last week about indicatives and imperatives. I know we didn't spend a ton of time on it. We talked about other stuff too. I get that. And you slept since then. But indicative and imperative. We said that if you put the do before the done in the gospel, you get the gospel out of order and therefore you get the gospel wrong, right? That all of the commands of God on our heart and our life, on our actions, our attitudes, our everything exists in the context of therefore. It's about walking consistently with who we've already been joyfully declared to be. So we've spent a couple of weeks now talking about the first little bit of chapter 4. But we're going to talk about it again this morning because we're not done with it. We're going to start in verse 1 again. But today, today it may have something to do with all this bread and juice that we have up here at the front. Sound good? Paul In chapter 4, verse 1, 
says this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what does that have to do with the Lord's Supper? Not a whole lot. If you were to ask me or anyone else in our leadership structure what the purpose of the Lord's Supper is, like if you were just to pull them aside and ask the question, hey, why do we do this? The first, question, the first answer excuse me, that ought to come out of their mouth is to say, in order to proclaim the gospel. If they don't, they're fired. No, we can't fire anybody because I'm the only one on the payroll. All right, so in order to proclaim the gospel. Really? Well, yeah, that's exactly what Paul said it was for in, in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's walking through uh, our understanding what the Lord's Supper is and he spells that out for the Corinthian church. He says, you, as you participate in this, you show the Lord's death until he comes. That's what that means, right? It's for the proclamation of the gospel. And so if you ask somebody in our leadership here, myself included, the first thing that ought to come out of our mouth is to proclaim the gospel. But to proclaim the gospel to who? Well, to proclaim the gospel to the visitor, to the outsider, the non-follower of Jesus in our midst. This table is for believers, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing but believers in this room, right? And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, part of what we're doing is proclaiming the gospel to those who are witnessing it, right? They watch us put our trust, put our hope in something outside of us, right? Part of a picture of what's going on here is dying to ourselves and trusting Jesus instead. So one of the groups of people that we proclaim the gospel to is the outsider, the non-believer. But that's not all we're proclaiming the gospel to, is it? There's two categories of people in this room. Who are they? The non-believer and the? Are we proclaiming the gospel to ourselves? Absolutely we are. Do we need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves? Like some people get tired. Are we going to talk about the gospel again? Yes. <laughs> no, we need to proclaim the, the gospel to ourselves. We are reminding ourselves of what our Savior has done on our behalf. The primary audience for the Lord's Supper when it comes to proclaiming the gospel is not the non-believer. The primary audience of who the gospel is proclaimed to is our very own hearts, right? We repent of sin. We cling to our God. We preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis, to our head and to our heart. But this is this kind of special moment where we are given a picture of what our God has done. Because here's the reality. The cost of reconciling us to our Savior was not minor. The cost of reconciling us to Jesus was not a flippant thing to him. I oh, just, here you go. The Bible teaches that he bled for this. That he was broken for this, right? And so even though we, we, we 
remind ourselves of the gospel every single day and every single moment, even though we have to remind ourselves that we are saved by grace and not by our works. I mean, even with all the chaos this morning as we're trying our best to put some songs together that were disorganized and we had to change things in mid-flight and all these kinds of things, we were reminding ourselves of the gospel in that moment, but he's also given us this incredible picture of just how much he has loved us. Like we can remind ourselves of it on an internal level, but sometimes I need the picture. How about you? And in a moment, in a moment, we're going to celebrate together and some of us are going to have to collapse into that reality. Right? Some of us are going to have to collapse into the reality that I don't bring anything to the table, but yet he loved me anyways and this is how deeply. The primary purpose above all other purposes of celebrating the Lord's Supper together is to proclaim the gospel as it applies to us individually because of our need for a Savior. But what if there's a secondary purpose? Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. the sin debt that was paid on our behalf by Jesus individually is not the only thing on our minds this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, Paul is talking, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've talked about that in depth. If you want to learn more, go listen to last week, right? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the first thing out of Paul's mouth after telling us that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to then follow that up by saying that our lives and our attitudes and our actions ought to be characterized by three things. Do you remember what those three things were? Humility, gentleness, patience. I mean, we can use some synonyms there, right? You just flesh that out a little bit. Paul says that our appropriate response to what God has done is to put others before ourselves. I mean, isn't that what humility is? Like a lot of famous people have said over and over again, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so to be others-focused servant-minded, looking to serve. Man, that's, that's a biblical definition of humility, right? Well, I mean, what word could we put in the place of, of gentleness? How about soft-handed? Looking to be restrained, looking to be gentle. What about patience? playing the long game in our relationships with others? You have relationships that just kind of burn bright for a moment and then fade away, and then you have relationships that are kind of slow burn, right? Where you love them and you want good for them and you're pouring into them. Wouldn't that be a good biblical understanding of patience? 
He says our lives and our hearts, our attitudes, our actions, our everything ought to be characterized by, by those three things, humility, gentleness, and patience. And don't we kind of all want that out of our friends? I mean, like is anybody in here going, you know what? I really want to surround myself with people who are arrogant, people who are heavy-handed, and people who just fly off the handle at the slightest little offense. Like, don't we all want that? Like, even if you're not the humble, patient, gentle person, you still want to surround yourself with those type of people, right? We all want that. And Paul says, that's, all, that's who we ought to be. So, let's do it, right? Starting today, starting today, we are all going to be humble. Yeah. <laughs> and starting today, we are all going to be patient. We're going to do it right now. And starting today, we're all going to be gentle. And if anybody doesn't want to be gentle, we'll make them be gentle. Paul says that we ought to be characterized by humility, by gentleness, by patience. And maybe this is the moment where we need to remind ourselves that we are operating in the context of therefore. How you doing on those three things? You may be more naturally inclined to some of them over others, but you nailing them perfectly? I, I, am not, I, I am not humble enough for what is required of me. Everything in me wars against humility. Are you kidding me? I long to be noticed. I long to be recognized. I long to exert my own way in things. Don't I? You any different? My heart is not naturally inclined to patience. My heart is not naturally inclined to gentleness. And if this is up to me, I'm in a load of trouble. Aren't I? I don't have what it takes here. Neither you nor I can be as humble as we need to be. Neither you nor I can be as gentle as we must be. Neither you nor I have a chance, even the slightest chance, at the patience that is required to us by a holy and perfect God. And I don't know how you're doing this morning, but I have a long-standing tendency to posture myself towards the opposite of those things. because of Jesus' death on the cross in my place. I'm no longer my own. I have been bought with a price. I have been reconciled to the one who is perfectly humble. I have been redeemed and brought back into right relationship with he who is perfectly gentle. And I am in the process of being loved enduringly by God who is perfectly patient towards me. I am not humble. I am not gentle. I am not patient. But I have been brought back into right relationship with he who is perfect in all of those things. I have been reconciled to him and I have been reconciled by him to a bunch of other people who don't belong in this room either. 
And so while the Lord's Supper is primarily for the proclaiming as, of the gospel as it applies to us individually concerning our sin, it is also for the proclaiming of what the gospel does as it applies to us corporately. It's about showing off our status as one body united by one spirit. It's for reminding ourselves and for telling the story to the outsider in our midst that we have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, according to verse 5. One God and Father over all. And so we take this bread and this juice together because we're trying to do something in this moment, right? Like, like you ever thought through the process of celebrating the Lord's Supper together? I had to think through this, that this week because we had some changes that we were wanting to implement and I, got to, I had to figure out how we do it but still chase after, hold on to the things that we call valuable but do it in a way that's not just absolute chaos, right? I had to figure out how this works. This is a logistics nightmare. You know what would be easier? If we put these tables at the back of the room and you grab some on your way in or on your way out. But why don't we do that? Because we're trying to teach something in this moment, aren't we? We take this together. This is not about convenience. Like we try to streamline some things, but if we, if we do things for the sake of convenience instead of for the sake of what we're trying to proclaim in this moment, we've missed the boat. So in a second, we're going to celebrate together, but there's something far more eternal on the table here than just whatever is convenient for us individually. We are proclaiming the gospel to the outsider. We are proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, and we are proclaiming the gospel as one body. So in a second, we're going to celebrate. And we're going to give you instructions, and they may not be the, the least complicated thing ever, but it's what we're going to do. And here's what's really cool. Here's what's just absolutely amazing to me about what God is doing. Because when each one of us comes to the Lord's table as God has called us to, and that, that's marked by confession and repentance before God, right? And so when each one of us comes to the Lord's table like he's called us to, when we, each one of us lays down our rights, lays down our privileges, lays down our demands, lays down our sin nature, lays down all of these things, when each one of us comes to the Lord's table as we've been called by God to do so, there's some other stuff that, that tends to happen, right? Our God is big, and I mean like really big, and he's really smart, and he likes to use ordinary means to bring about his purposes, and so when we do all of these things, all the little like hiccups and, and conflicts that tend to rise up in a room full of sinners when you lock the door, right? Uh, does that ever happen? That doesn't happen here, right? Uh, all the little conflicts that rise to the surface that just kind of bubble up, when we come to the table as we've been called by God to come to the table, all those things have a tendency to just go away. Maybe not all of them, at least most of them. You just got to disappear. And the reason for that is because a lot of those conflicts were birthed out of having something other than Jesus and his gospel at the center that we're revolving around. And we put Jesus back in his rightful place, all those dumb little things disappear. 
doesn't mean there isn't conflict. That doesn't mean there aren't real issues to work out. But listen, for the things that don't just magically go away, they now exist and operate in a context, in a framework where we are putting others before ourselves. Where we value Jesus and what he has done and what he has done for our brother or sister more than getting our own way. You ever try to solve problems in that context? Man, it's fast. Problem solving is always easier when you walk in the door and other people are trying to outdo each other in love. Right? And so when we come to this table, as God has called us to this table, when, he, when we prepare our hearts and we approach this as he's called us to, we get to become, in a deeper sense, that one body, united by one spirit, with one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, Father over all, who is in all and through all. We proclaim the gospel to ourselves. We proclaim the gospel as a body. We proclaim the gospel to the outsider watching us. We talked about this Wednesday night too, right? Whether we're in Philippians 2 or Ephesians 4, the cure for conflict in the body of Christ is to focus better on Jesus what the answer is. Those lesser problems just kind of go away. And so the Lord's Supper, when correctly celebrated, is a picture of unity because it's a picture of us dying to ourselves as we follow Jesus. So in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But first, we have to answer a question. How do we respond to God's word this morning? I mean, what do we do with that? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this table is going to be for you in a moment. It's, it's an open invitation to every Jesus follower in the room, but the first step is not coming to the table. The first step is an internal reality that prepares you for the table. It's confession and repentance before God, both individually and, listen, corporately as well. You may need to repair some things this week between you and another church member. If we're going to call ourselves the family of Nashua Baptist Church, then, then we repent before God for personal sin, but we also repent before God for, for corporate sin. And we may, we may need to do something about that, right? So maybe this week you've got you to put some feet to that. You may need to repair some things between you and a brother or sister. Our response is to press into God this morning by laying your, ourselves bare before him and trusting his great love for us. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and that'll be an opportunity for you to put legs to, to whatever God's calling you to in your heart. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I tell you every single week, I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. The Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that there is separation between you and God. And this table, this table is for the follower of Jesus in the room for those who have been reconciled to him. So in a moment when we celebrate, you get to watch. But it's not too late to celebrate. That separation between you and God has a solution. The Bible also teaches that Jesus came and died on a cross in the place for our sin. He paid the debt that is owed for our sin. And so when we repent of that sin and trust him as Lord, when we call on him to save us, that he does so. So maybe, maybe you're here today and you have never taken that step to call on him and trust him. And you want to do that first. 
Man, we love to celebrate the picture that he's given with you. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. It'll be a time for all of us to respond how God is calling us to respond this morning. And then after we're done with that, we're going to celebrate as a family. Sound good? Good. God, you're good to us. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the picture of the Lord's Supper. God, despite all of our insufficiencies, despite our sinful tendencies, you are a God who saves, who takes the the reject, who takes those who have no business knowing him and makes themselves known to him. God, would you save people this morning? Would you help them trust that you are a God who not only reconciles, but does what is necessary to reconcile. You have paid the debt on our behalf. God, you are a good God. And it is mornings like these that we need to be reminded of just how deeply, just how effectually you have loved us. So in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.